You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. You know, back when I was in the academy, we would follow every toast with a song. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything that was a little bit of Data and Picard from Pogo, one of my favorite just oddball artists. Uh, You can definitely, definitely check out more of his music. He is uh, just quirky and weird, and uh, I love it. He does remixes on Disney themes, like old Disney animated classics. He'll do kind of EDM, techno-type stuff with uh, bits of dialogue from old Disney movies. Also, this one, obviously, from Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, It's just fun on so many levels. Uh, He's also got a few he's done from, like, grittier movies, like Pulp Fiction. He's got one that... uh, is not quite language uh, appropriate for <laughs> younger listeners, so watch out for that one. Uh, he also did one with uh, some sound bits from Trump's speeches and rallies and things like that, and that one's fun. But uh, in any event, today is May 21st, 2022. This is episode 395 of this podcast, and uh, it just so happens to be my son... John Lazarus's birthday today. He turns four years old today, which is crazy. He is just a sweet, sweet guy, sweet boy, uh, very funny, uh, very cheerful, ornery, uh, not shy, and not really any of our kids are shy per se, which I think is a good thing. Sometimes we have to moderate that as parents and try and encourage them to be a little bit more discreet. But we don't want them to be shy. We want them to be confident and to enjoy interacting with people and to be enjoyed in turn. You know, if they are conversational and they brighten somebody's day, that's a good thing. Of course, our job as parents is, again, to help them to be considerate and uh, to know, you know when is a good time to be uh, maybe talking. Uh, none of my kids have a hard time with opening up per se, but they all are pretty good at, uh, you know, making their thoughts known. I think that's a good thing, but it always has to be balanced, right? You have to be able to balance talking with listening 
in order to be a well-rounded communicator. Listening is so very important to being a good communicator. And John, for his part, he's very sensitive to uh, what people are feeling and what they're thinking. And he just happens to have this really good emotional intelligence that is uh, beyond his four years. You wouldn't think that he is just turning four today. He's been three. Uh, He's an honorary member of the college group at church, kind of snuck into one of their group photos this past year. And uh, I think that's spectacular. Both Lauren and I just love the way that our college group at church interacts with him. They're very, very sweet with him. And uh, really everybody, everybody's kind to him. And uh, it's great. It's great to see. Happy birthday to John Lazarus. We love you. And we are very excited to see what the good Lord is going to do in your life moving forward. You know, just real quick, because this is a a tradition. This is a family tradition that we hold to. Uh, John is named for the two Johns in the New Testament. First, of the four Gospels, I really like Johns. I think that it is philosophical, and I love the talk of Logos, the Word made flesh. I love that it is written uh, primarily with a Greek audience in mind. And so certain things are emphasized, which are going to resonate with Greek minds, Greek hearts. So that's cool. Uh, Also too, John never passes up an opportunity to remind readers that he was Jesus' favorite, <laughs> as he sees it. Just ask him. He was uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's funny and a little bit ornery, uh, maybe just a tad bit um, unnecessary, but yet funny because there's a human element to his enjoying that. He, you know, He likes the fact that he was the disciple that Jesus loved, and he lets us know about it. And uh, there's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek quality to it, at least the way I read it. Also, to the other John, uh, I like as much or more, is John the Baptist, as we know him, as we refer to him. You know, John is just this uh, weird character who lives out in the wilderness, lives out in the desert, wearing camel skins and eating locusts and honey. He is not polite society. And in fact, the question is asked, you know, what did you go out to the desert to see? Did you see John as being this uh, guy wearing fine clothing, living in a palace and waxing eloquent, being uh, part of the establishment? No, you didn't. You went out to see John because he was preaching the coming of the kingdom. He was heralding the arrival of the Messiah and he was speaking truth. That's what you went out to the desert to see. You know, John saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, baptizing people in the Jordan, symbolically demonstrating that you are dead to your sins. You've died to your sins, and now you rise again in Christ. And then it's a funny thing, too, that Jesus himself, even though he has no sins, he's just doing this as obedience to the Father and as an example to us, which we do well to remember. He's not just our Savior. He's also our example. But Jesus himself is baptized by John right before he goes out into the desert himself for 40 days. He goes off by himself in isolation to pray and to fast, and there he's tempted by Satan. 
And Satan quotes scripture to Jesus, and Jesus obviously knows the scriptures and quotes scripture right back to Satan. It is written, Jesus says. John, for his part, though, is somebody who does not part, it doesn't show partiality. He shows no partiality. He's not partial. He shows no partiality to anyone, and he ultimately loses his head. He's arrested, thrown in prison, and is beheaded by Herod because he calls King Herod to repentance publicly. Now, that could be seen as a very disrespectful thing. Here's this person with authority. We're told to respect those in authority, submit ourselves to those in authority. But first and foremost, we do that because we're submitting to God's authority. If we lose the plot on that and we forget that we're supposed to be submitting to God's authority, then we will very quickly be led astray by lower-level authorities. We're not supposed to bow to golden images of them, for instance, or affirm what God has said he detests and that which is abominable. We're not supposed to affirm evil, ungodly, untrue things in our submission to lower-level authorities that God has instituted, surely. Surely enough, even Herod must have been instituted by God for a purpose, but that does not mean that you can affirm or show partiality towards him just because he's an authority. When he sends his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill every baby boy two years old and under because he's trying to eliminate what he perceives as being a rival to his own power, he was doing an abominably wicked, evil thing. When he does that, he should not be submitted to, I would argue, by his soldiers. He should be submitted to up until the point where doing so would mean disobedience to God. Obedience to God is disobedience to tyrants. Obedience to tyrants is disobedience to God. That was almost our national motto. It didn't quite make it, but it almost made it. But in any event, check out John in the New Testament. Whether you're choosing John the Baptist or you're choosing the disciple whom Jesus loved, check him out because I think both Johns are very uh, compelling characters. They're good examples to learn from. Not that everything they do is correct. Maybe you shouldn't go bragging that you're the favorite. Maybe that's not a good idea. See also Joseph. Uh, But also Lazarus. Uh, Consider Lazarus, that Lazarus was a rich man, and yet he was Jesus' friend. And also consider the fact that Lazarus's sisters send for Jesus when Lazarus gets very ill. He gets very, very sick. And they believe in Jesus, that Jesus is able to heal Lazarus and to keep him from dying. But Jesus doesn't come, or at least Jesus doesn't come in the timing that they want. And so Lazarus dies. He dies of his illness, and then Jesus shows up as everyone is mourning. And so there's this mourning period, and Lazarus's sisters are very honest I think, in their reactions, their response to Jesus when he does show up. You know, our brother would not have died. He loved you. He would not have died if you had come when we called for you. And this is such a poignant moment in all of scriptures and particularly in the Gospels. It's the shortest verse in the entire Bible. All it is is two words. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It was not a departure from his divinity or his humanity that 
here was his friend who had died, and here was this expression of raw emotion from Lazarus's sisters. You know, they're hurting, they're confused, they don't understand what's going on. This is not the way that it's supposed to work. Why didn't you come? I don't understand. And it says Jesus wept. But then what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And also, too, what happens when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? It says that the religious leaders who had been conspiring against him all of a sudden started plotting how they could kill him and Lazarus. You know, that's a remarkable thing that here Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And the response is not to all of a sudden believe in him because they perceive that he is indeed the Son of God as he claimed to be. No, the response is to want to murder him. And that is instructive of human nature, something that we would do well to study and to be aware of, not so that we can become evil as well and corrupted as well, but because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out. That means also the details like this, where it says that the religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus after he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they wanted to kill Lazarus too. It's like, you got to imagine if you're Lazarus here, it's like, wait, I just was raised from the dead. I was dead. And then I was raised from the dead by Jesus. And now these guys want to kill me. Why? It's not like I did anything wrong. I'm just being alive. See, the, the trouble was that he represented Jesus' power and Jesus' authority. And the religious leaders had set their faces against Jesus. Now they had a vested interest in proving him wrong in order to hold on to their own power, their own legitimacy. And if we study that, if we pay attention to that, if we learn important lessons from that, we also can be wise as serpents and harmless as doves in obedience to what Jesus said when he sent out his disciples. For that matter, too, I think it's important to note that the Pharisees were authorities after a fashion, and it was not proper to see their authority as being the penultimate, the lower authority, the rank-and-file frontline manager authority somehow trumps the chief authority, who is God. When Jesus shows up, he pulls rank, and he has every right to, and he should. And one of the things that he says is, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, you shall in no ways enter the kingdom of heaven. He says that, and when he does so, he is entirely in the right. And also, when he does that, he is setting an example, I think, for us in how we are to regard lower-level authorities in the context of God telling us to submit to them. First and foremost, you're submitting to God's authority. Secondarily, you're submitting to these human authorities that he's instituted. You can't get that flipped around to where then you are obeying God's authority because these lower-level authorities told you to, and you only obey God when they give you permission to. You obey God first, and secondarily, because you obey God's authority first, you will obey and submit to human authorities. Not the other way around. A lot of people get this twisted, and it leads to a lot of issues and trouble, but we need to keep it straight. Now, on this note, I want to talk in this episode more about mockery and tone and whether it's ever appropriate to speak 
in a way that uh, holds certain important people in derision? Is it appropriate ever to mock? Is it or is it not? Is it always categorically inappropriate or is it ever potentially appropriate or is it a gray issue? You know, black, white, or gray, how do we think through this? How do we reason properly? You know, take, for instance, the Babylon Bee, satirical news site, very popular for years and years. It has provoked the ire of the left in this country time and again, and recently was taken off of Twitter because Babylon Bee uh, awarded Rachel Levine, as this person is known, their Man of the Year award. Uh, Rachel Levine, if you don't know, is a government official in the Obama slash Biden administration. I say Obama slash Biden because I think Obama is really the one still pulling the strings behind the scenes. Uh, you know, somebody joked recently that whoever is writing the teleprompter is the actual president. Biden is not the actual president. You know, when you have a whole movie set, you have to make like a replica of the Oval Office because you need to install permanent teleprompters because you can't afford the president of the United States to go off script even for a moment. Uh, that truth is maybe delivered in joke form, but it's the truth nonetheless. Whoever's writing the teleprompter script is the actual president and Biden is just a figurehead. And this has happened at various times throughout history. You will have a figurehead who has the legitimacy, they have the credentials, but the real power behind the throne is a kind of regent. They're behind the scenes and they control the figurehead. The figurehead is just a, a kind of puppet. Uh, this happened in feudal Japan, for instance. Uh, the shogun was a warlord who was kind of the protector, so-called, supposedly, of the emperor. He was the emperor's right-hand man. And very often what would happen is the various warlords in Japan, uh, representing the various clans, they would make war on one another and send assassins against one another and plot and scheme against one another to be appointed shogun. And so their armies are going to go fight and their assassins are going to fight and their counter-assassins and spies and other such were going to fight for supremacy for their daimyo or feudal lord. And whoever the shogun was was the actual ruler of Japan, even though the emperor was the nominal ruler. So the emperor is the person everybody is worshiping and regarding as a god and divine, and yet the shogun has the practical power, whatever you want to call him. Well, so also, you can have that, and there's no reason to suppose that that could happen for a long, long time in a place like Japan, but it couldn't happen here. A lot of us strongly suspect that that is what is actually up, and change my mind, right? Change my mind. Tell me that that is not the case when you see what happens when Biden goes off script even for a little bit, or he's doing an interview, or he's doing a press conference, or he's just at some kind of a ceremony, and he needs constant attention to keep him from wandering off, saying the wrong thing, 
and getting himself into trouble. Not only is he not actually running the country, he's not even running himself at this point. There was an excellent piece at the Daily Wire recently talking about how we need to end the gerontocracy. Gerontocracy is just uh, the rule of the elderly. Now, it's one thing to say that you should be of a certain age, like it's written into the Constitution. You can't run for president. You can't be elected president unless you are over 35. So now I'm of the proper age. It doesn't mean I'm going to run for president. Lots of 35-year-olds in the U.S., and uh, we can't all be president. But it is to say that the framers of our form of government, the founders of this nation, figured, you know, 35, that's a, that's a decent age. That's okay. 35, we can see somebody potentially being mature enough, being experienced enough, being battle-tested enough by life that we would be able to make an informed decision, and also they would be up for the job. Under 35, no, let them serve in some lower office and pay their dues and prove themselves. But we want somebody to be at least 35. But as this article in the Daily Wire pointed out, there's no upper limit, and maybe there should be. You know, the problems that were attendant in the 18th century are not quite the same problems that are attendant now. More and more people are living to be between 80 and 100 years old. And as they get up there uh, into their 80s and 90s and even past 100, very often, uh, if not always, (laughs) either their body is failing and they can't really take care of themselves because they're, they're nearing end of life. It just, that just is what it is. That's one of the features of the fall. It's nothing against them. It's just the fact that we wear out. We wear out and our bodies stop replacing cells as quickly as those cells are breaking down. That's the aging process for you. Either their bodies are wearing out and their minds are still sharp, but therefore they're limited in what practical benefit can be had from their minds because their bodies are wearing out, or B, their bodies are wearing out and their minds are wearing out, in which case they're doubly unsuited to be wielding supreme executive authority or judicial authority or legislative authority, or C, their bodies are in okay shape, but their minds are gone. They don't remember things. They have a hard time concentrating. They have a hard time understanding new situations. They're always thinking about past situations, but they have a hard time adapting to new situations. Well, in all of the above, as we have more and more of our senior government officials, and by that I mean our elected officials, senators, congressmen, uh, judges, presidents, who are in that stage of life, that end of life uh, you know, 80, 70, 80, 90 years old, uh, we are limited. And by, you know, when I say we, I mean our country, our, all of us are limited by their ability to adapt and overcome and think through problems and respond appropriately. And really to, you know, at a certain point, you just have to say like, it's irresponsible. It is unethical and immoral for one to put these figures in those positions and keep them there. It's 
it's irresponsible to do that. Also, it's irresponsible for them to continue going back and seeking re-election. It's irresponsible, it's unethical, it's immoral. And the only thing that explains their stubbornly holding on to power well past their prime the way that they are, so many of them are, the only thing that explains it is foolish pride and arrogance and ego and selfishness. It's not for love of country that your mind would be gone and you would still stubbornly insist on being in the driver's seat of the country for domestic issues, for international issues. It's not right. It's wrong. And it's wrong that we allow it to continue. So we need to change that. We need to fix it. But here's the kicker. I say that and somebody might come up with an objection. They might say, well, that's really disrespectful. You're supposed to show respect for your elders. How can you say that somebody being 80, 90, 100 years old needs to step down and that they're being immoral to continue on in that function? And to that, I would reply, how can I not, actually? How can I not? You know, some take when we read in the New Testament to honor the emperor, they take that too far and they treat it like a blank check, uh, really truly. And I realize that for those who are in authority, encouraging a very strict, uh, total interpretation of honoring those in authority might be tempting. You know, if you're in authority, you might be tempted to say, that honoring those in authority means not questioning them, not challenging them, not disagreeing with them, not calling them to repentance. But in terms of the Christian faith and practice, we should glean from the scriptures. I think we would have a very hard time reckoning with the prophets of old in the Old Testament who preached repentance to kings and queens. And I think we would have a very hard time reckoning with characters like John the Baptist who literally lost their lives because they were calling the king or the ruler to repentance for wickedness. I think we would be very confused to come to those passages with an excessively uh, strict and total interpretation of what honoring the emperor means. And it does not just have to be the question of, was there a clear demonstrable sin, like in the case of Herod taking his brother's wife, or like in the case of a Jezebel promoting literal idolatry, we're going to literally promote the worship of false gods in Israel. It doesn't have to just be a strictly demonstrable sin. I think it can also be, hey, wait a second, like this is immoral and ungodly, like when we read in the Old Testament laws concerning if somebody's on your roof and they fall off and they break their neck and die and you had no railing up there that's on you you created this dangerous situation and you didn't mitigate the hazards if somebody dies as a result you are negligent and culpable for having been negligent you could have foreseen reasonably that this was going to be the outcome and you are culpable you are at fault well here's a question and this is a, a question that picks up on what I was talking about in yesterday's episode, Griping and Saving Private Ryan anyway, do we have to wait until disaster happens to say somebody is at fault and therefore should be called out? 
Do we have to wait until after the fact to address issues? Or is wisdom actually seeing trouble coming and hiding yourself? Well, actually, that's literally what it is. The wise see trouble coming and hide themselves. The foolish continue on regardless, and they suffer for it. There's wisdom and folly in a nutshell for you. And yeah, we can debate what is always wise and necessary and you know what all mitigation is reasonable and to what extent do we worry or plan ahead and to what extent should we just trust the good Lord? Yeah, we can debate that in the particulars, but nevertheless, the principle is sound that there is a place for telling people who are in authority this is unwise and real men, women, and children are going to suffer if you continue on in this way. I think also, too, when real men, women, and children are suffering, and it's not an abstract or theoretical, but it's practical, real, indisputable, the stubbornness to continue on in a way of being which results in human suffering, unnecessary human suffering, avoidable human suffering, should be rightly questioned as, is this malicious? Is this wickedness? Is this not just unwise? Is this wicked? Is this intentional neglect? Because you're an abusive, ugly, awful monster. The wickedness of man does not somehow cease to be a factor when we're talking about people in authority. Nor either should we suppose that God's sovereignly permitting a wicked ruler to rule over us means that no longer is it appropriate to call for repentance. That's just not the way that it works. God sovereignly allowed a wicked queen like Jezebel to rule and to have command authority. God sovereignly allowed a wicked king like Herod to rule and have authority. That does not mean that it was untoward for God's prophets, God's spokespeople, to call them to repentance, to warn the public about them. Don't follow them. Do not listen to them. Do not obey them in these things. If you do, you're complicit. They tell you to worship some false god. Don't do it. God will not hold you guiltless if you do. And you can't fall back on, well, I was under orders. I was just following orders. You can't do that. That will not suffice. You were supposed to be following orders. Yes, indeed. You were supposed to be following God's orders, first and foremost. And when the two are in accordance with one another, great. That's a happy condition. That's a blessed condition. And you shouldn't rebel against that. That's, that's when disobedience is wicked and awful and ungodly and evil. But when the two are at odds, we must obey God rather than men consistently. Old Testament, New Testament, throughout the whole counsel of God, that is the pattern. But I want to read for you something I wrote yesterday. We were going to have in Gladii Veritas, but it just didn't work out. We were watching Chavez Kids last night. Lauren and I and our kids had the Chavez Kids over, and that was a joy. That was fun, really enjoyable. Uh, Enoch and Evelyn especially just really, really love, and John too, obviously. But uh, Evelyn and Enoch are the most vocal because they're the closest in age to Elise and Jonathan and Norman Chavez. And so we had that going on, which made Ingladiae Veritas just not quite feasible for us. And then plus, uh, Joseph had some engagement with his family he was committed to. And so we just decided, okay, we're not going to meet this week. But I was working on an essay, and I have it 
I think most of the way written. It's still a little bit rough, so bear with me. But I want to read it for you anyways, because time is of the essence, and there's no time like the present. So the title of the article is, Should Christians Ever Mock Anyone? And I'll just go ahead and read it for you, and bear with me, like I said, if some of this is not quite as refined as it would be uh, had I had more time to edit it. We need to talk seriously for a moment on the topic of Christian mockery, whether it exists and what it entails, if it is ever appropriate. Recently, while I was leading a small group of middle schoolers in discussion for our youth group, an unexpected question came up about whether God laughs at people when they're being foolish. All girls, except for one boy in my group, they gave me either crinkled noses or else blank stares when I suggested that the Lord does indeed. To prove it to them, I had to turn their attention to Psalm 2, 4, There we read the following gem. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Here it is then. The nations, peoples, kings, rulers, all rage, plot, set themselves against, and take counsel together to oppose their maker. And how does the Most High respond? How does the Holy One reply? He laughs at them. And then he speaks angry words to them. Now, a caution is worth both saying and hearing. Just because God speaks angrily to the ungodly, that does not mean we are quite so safe too. And by this, I don't just mean that we have cause to fear for our physical safety, though that is a consideration. What I mean more is that we need to take care to be slow to get angry like James, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about. For the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. This is a curious statement. It could be stated more directly, but it feels... Like a certain measure of reading between the lines is necessary to take the meaning. It's a curious thing that the psalmist tells us. God laughs before responding angrily to those who rebel against him. And is that the order of operations? A ridiculous thing is done by wicked foolish men. Then comes the mocking. Then comes the wrath. For that matter, there is some dispute over whether mockery by Christians is ever appropriate. The Babylon Bee crowd has made their position known, but so also there are plenty of quieter voices in the church who grimace at the idea that we would ever make fun of sin and folly, however absurd. Their position is that such is not loving nor respectful. Aren't we supposed to always be ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect? And aren't we warned repeatedly in the scriptures against scoffing? On that latter point, it's worth noting that we are to be ready to answer those asking us for the reason of the hope within us. Yet, in my experience, such folks are not typically in the same category as those who could be more rightly classified as the dogs and swine to whom we are not to give our pearls nor what is holy. At a minimum, then, it is safe to say we ought never to mock simple, innocent questions about our faith from those who are on the outside looking in. If they come to us wanting to know more about our Savior, We should not put them down or make jokes at their expense, clearly. We should be patient and kind and clear as well as we state plainly who Christ is and why we love and trust him. But what about the dogs? What about the swine? Jesus says to not give them our pearls or what is holy, but in order to obey him here, we have to know who the pigs and canines are. And if he called them such, and was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, will it be said that we are sinning if we agree with him on our way? Imagine I sent my sons on an errand through the woods and told them to watch out for wolves in sheep's clothes, a rather amusing word picture when you think about it. 
It would hardly do if they nodded agreeably while I was with them, then as soon as they got out of earshot, turned to one another in confusion. What's a wolf? Then a shrug. I don't know. This is the way many Christians most squeamish about satire and mockery carry on when one of our number gets a bit more candid than the rest. Jesus can say that there are, generally speaking, broods of vipers and wolves in sheep's clothes, plus swine and doggos. But if we start to get more specific about who they might be, that is a travesty. Yet, how can we do as Jesus tells us with regards to these types of people if we never under any circumstances dare to point them out? And for that matter, what is the appropriate response to such brute beasts when we encounter them, if not occasional sarcasm? They are not, I would reiterate, in the same category as those who would come to us sincerely asking questions about the gospel, earnestly desiring to know more about what they must do to be saved. But what does Peter say about them? But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. These are hard words, and not very nice per se. Never will you find ever a best-selling book in the Christian nonfiction section of your nearest Lifeway titled Irrational Animals or Blots and Blemishes. And you can rest fairly assured that neither K-Love nor VeggieTales will ever go here. But is it possible that we have become too nice? In earnestly desiring to be kind, loving, gentle, compassionate, all good qualities to be sure, are our definitions of these real and godly Christian virtues perhaps too one-sided? Perhaps you miss my meaning, or perhaps I ask amiss. What I mean is that I suspect we have been taken captive by an overly austere adherence to niceness. And I wonder if thereby we would rebuke Jesus and Peter and Paul if they came into our local churches and Christian publishing houses saying the sorts of things they say in the Bible. Or what else can we call what Paul writes to the Galatians except for mockery? I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. And here the apostle is talking about the circumcision party which tells Gentile converts their men cannot be embraced as true believers unless they follow the law in addition to believing the gospel Paul and Barnabas preached to them, by which they have both already been saved and are being. Yet there are so many far nicer ways he could have said it, and he could have stopped short of the bit about castration. What if these Judaizers are themselves brothers in Christ? And what if they are truth seekers? He may have just deeply offended them to the point of division. His was a cutting remark, to be sure, if you take my meaning, but what he was getting at must surely have been to some good and godly purpose. Furthermore, there is precedent in the example set by Christ himself. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, Everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over you without knowing it. What immediately preceded this holy outburst, I would remind you, was that Jesus had been speaking when a Pharisee asked to have dinner with him. 
But when Jesus did not wash before dinner, instead jumping immediately into eating, quote, the Pharisee was astonished, end quote. Clearly, events had been building up to this moment. Yet the conventional wisdom in polite Christian circles today might at times be striving to give the Pharisees a run for their money. Or what else are we to make of it? If the standard of personal holiness and good conduct set by Jesus, Peter, and Paul in the New Testament is lost on us, do some of us at first laugh, then immediately groan and grimace when a joke is made about Joel Osteen being a con artist or Tim Keller being a communist? If so, I dare say the former response may be godlier and the latter more deserving an apology and repentance. But then the cautious soul will interject here that Jesus was the divine son of God and therefore knew more perfectly who needed calling out and who did not. What's more, Peter and Paul were apostles and were writing scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We, meanwhile, need to be more careful. That is true enough. We do need to be careful. So also with anger, whatever Jesus did in the temple with a whip turning over tables and chasing money changers out of his father's house, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Yet sometimes it should be noted making a joke at someone's expense is the more cautious route. Or perhaps it should be said it is the warning shot, opening salvo, and preliminary engagement. Call it a wake-up call even. And that's as far as I've gotten. So there we are. <clears throat> My point in all this is not to scold folks who are kind, agreeable, polite. I don't mean that. And that wouldn't be good. That wouldn't be proper. And I don't mean to suggest that we are in error to if our conscience prevents us from speaking sarcastically to anyone for any reason. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that we should go against conscience in that regard. But I, I do mean to give uh, a little bit of a pushback, if you will, on whether personal conscience here uh, might, just maybe, right? Just maybe make it difficult for us to understand what's being said at different key points in the scriptures, in the biblical narrative. You know, if Paul says something or Peter says something and it's rough and it's abrasive, it's even potentially mocking like Galatians 5.12, we could say, well, okay, maybe he was just a little bit overboard there. But see, my worry there is if we do that, we start doing that with their sarcasm. For one... Why are we doing that? And it's an honest question. I don't mean that just as a rhetorical. I don't think there's a good answer to it, but I, I want to hear a good answer if there is one. Why are we doing that? Is there something in the scriptures that I've missed? Because there definitely is plenty that I don't fully understand, and I know I don't fully understand. There's probably more besides that I think I understand. I don't quite understand so well as I think I do. And there's probably plenty more besides that I don't even know that I don't understand because I just missed it. I think that this piece with the sarcasm of Peter and Paul and Jesus at various points, I think this piece here might be something that has similarly been missed by folks who are much more nice and kind and just it's just it, it's their temperament uh, and it's also the way they were brought up. It's the church culture to some extent. You know, there are glaring examples of the opposite. Uh, some church cultures, and by church cultures, I mean like local church cultures or denominational personae that are marked 
by a much rougher treatment of outsiders and insiders both. And usually there's a kind of overcompensating that can happen when we're trying so hard to not be like those folks that we become their opposite. Well, did we need to become their opposite or did we need to moderate? You know, when we read in Ecclesiastes, for instance, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. When we read that, the immoderate extreme position will be to say, for instance, with verse 3, there's a time to break down, there's a time to build up. You know, I've just known too many people who got carried away with the breaking down. I think we should only ever build, and uh, I just think that would be a lot safer. Uh, or the inverse, right? The inverse happens when the pendulum swings for some people. I say, well, you know, I've known too many people who only ever build up and it gets just really convoluted. And there are some structures that have rotted and they're no longer safe for human habitation and they really should be torn down. And so I don't think we need any more building. I think we should just break stuff. We should just tear down these buildings. And so that's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to focus on breaking down. But I don't think anybody, you know, if you're building up while I'm breaking down, then I I think you're in error. And so also the inverse is the guy who only builds up or the gal who only builds up will say to the person who breaks down, hey, why, why is it that I only ever see you breaking things? I never see you building. I want to see you building things up. You know, or take verse four, for instance, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Some people feel bad if they are ever sad. They see that Jesus wept and they don't know what to do with it because they were taught that that's unspiritual. That communicates a discontentedness with God that is ungodly, that reveals a lack of trust in God. If you're ever depressed, you are sinning because that reveals that you have a very ungodly view of yourself. Well, the flip side too is you, there are some people who are really in keeping with lamentations and they see that there's a time to laugh and they don't think there's ever a time to laugh. In fact, they think laughter is irreverent. You come into a church service and you should be sober. You should be just in pieces about your own sin and the state of the world. And if you can laugh ever, well, that's inappropriate. That's irreverent. And yet, all scriptures breathed out by God. This says, there is a time to mourn. It's proper to mourn. Like say, for instance, your friend Lazarus, your buddy Lazarus has died. That's an appropriate time to mourn. And yet we do not mourn as those who have no hope. But, <laughs> you know, uh, I'll, I'll pull a Fiddler on the Roof reference here because it's so great. Such a great movie. There is the wedding scene between Seidel and model, and they marry, and Laser Wolf, just a great name. Sounds like an 80s rock band, Laser Wolf. That's awesome. But Laser Wolf, the butcher, is crying. He's, <laughs> he's going to show up because, by golly, it's expected, and it, how would it look if he didn't come? But Seidel was promised to him. They had an agreement. They, they shook hands on it. They made an arrangement. They had an agreement. And he's in tears because he loves Seidel, or at least he thinks he loves her. Here again, we go back to the gerontocracy thing. At what age would it be unethical 
for you as an old man to ask this young lady to marry you. Like there, this could be like a question of morality and godliness, actually, if you're so much more interested or exclusively interested in what you want. You don't care about what it would do to her when you pass on in five years, in 10 years. Odds are high. Sorry. Sorry, no offense, but, you know, typically, typically as a rule, <laughs> a wedding is not an appropriate place to mourn. You know, unless unless you are the spurned lover, the spurned uh, admirer who was daydreaming that the two of you, you and the bride or you and the groom were going to really, really work out eventually. Uh, you know, it's not it's not appropriate to mourn at weddings. It might be, and, you know, and in that case, like it might be understandable, like we'll give you a pass, but still, like maybe just don't come, right? But it's, it is appropriate to dance at a wedding. I'm not a big dancer, but it is appropriate. Like if it's ever appropriate to dance anywhere at any time, babies being born, and young people getting married, you should dance, if no other time, at least then. Now, reading down through, there's a time to embrace, there's a time to refrain from embracing. Now, what does that mean? A time to refrain from embracing. It means sometimes it wouldn't be appropriate to give somebody a hug. It would send the wrong message. It would be out of keeping. It would be out of keeping like mourning at a wedding or dancing at a funeral, which, by the way, if you didn't know, not particularly appropriate to dance at funerals. However much you disliked the person, it is not appropriate to dance at a funeral. Kind of like the mourning at a wedding. If you're going to be that way, if that's how you feel, you, I mean, maybe you need to seek the Lord on that for one. For two, do everybody a favor and stay home because your sentiment is out of keeping with the occasion. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. You know, I wonder to myself with the whole casting away stones and gathering stones, this is just a thought. But, it, you know, it was very often when land would be <clears throat> marked as being in possession of somebody, you would make a pile of stones. So is that what this is? I don't know. Gather stones together. You're going to put this marker on the corner of the property to say, this is the edge, this is where my land begins and ends past this line, gathering stones together to build a house, to build a wall, to build an altar. Cool. Exciting. Just like it's sometimes a time to build up. Also, sometimes a time to cast away stones. All right. That's it. Namas. Not building up, tearing down right now. It's a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to tear, and a time to sow. A time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. You know, on, on this last bit, I think that's at the root of the question of mocking is what are you potentially declaring war on? You know, we do see mockery very often right before the battle is joined. What is it that Goliath does when he stands between the two camps? On the one side are the armies of Israel. On the other side are the armies of the Philistines. He stands between the two challenging anybody, Saul or anybody, send me your best guy. Let's see what you got. And he mocks them for days on end. And then David shows up, a man after God's own heart, and he goes 
out between the two camps. And he accepts the challenge. And so what is Goliath going to do to him too? He's going to mock him. And what does David respond with? Not quaking in his boots, not shrinking and slumping over, just curling up in the fetal position, running crying into the bathroom. No. David responds with saying, what? I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Let's go. My God will deliver you into my hand. Let's go. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But the question I think at the root, this is my take. And please, I mean, shoot me a message. Write to me at GarrettAshleyMullet at ProtonMail.com. Send an audio message in from Anchor FM. You know, if you've got a different take on this, you think I'm missing something. But, you know, my take on this is that whether and when is appropriate for a Christian to mock has everything to do with whether we should be in this time of war or peace, particularly with regards to the thing, person, place, or thing being mocked. If this person, place, or thing is at cross purposes with the Most High God, with Christian life and thought, we put it in one category. If actually I need to be kind and gentle and respectful and build this person up right now, well then, my response should be different. You know, I, think of this. Jesus says, don't cast pearls before swine because they'll just trample them under feet and come and tear you to pieces. Don't give to dogs what is holy. Well, also too, besides what you don't do with dogs and swine, which are threatening you, what do you do with dogs and swine who are threatening you? Well, you might throw a rock at them to get them to go away. For instance, you might make something of a threat display actually to mitigate the odds of a conflict, not to provoke a conflict, but to mitigate or because a conflict is unavoidable. I'm going to throw this rock at that pig and scare it off. I'm going to throw this rock at that dog and scare it off because it's looking like it thinks it's going to attack me right now. I think to some extent that's what mockery represents. Is it ever appropriate for the Christian? Well, I don't know. What did Christ do? Is that a, is that a guide? I think it. I think it is. I mean, maybe I'm reading it wrong. Maybe I'm reading it amiss. Let me know what you think. Please do, because maybe I am. Maybe I'm missing something here. That's all the time I've got for this episode, though. My wife Lauren is going to take John to go get some donuts. We're going to have some donuts, and I'm going to have some coffee with my donut, and we're going to celebrate his birthday today. It's a beautiful day. Weather's nice. We didn't get three to six inches yesterday, so go figure. That was what the forecast was calling for, but that's all right. We did get moisture. Today the weather is nice. Maybe we'll get some grass growing. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.